Catechesis means an instruction whose echo or sound resounds in the ears of the listener, says Daling. And at the same time, he shows how the word is used by the Greek. Therefore, the word really indicates an oral instruction, a teaching from mouth to ear, unless one would rather say from mouth to mouth. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Appold to continue our series on Leah and talking specifically about catechesis. Willie isn't able to be with us today because he's on the road, but I'm glad to get back into our Leah series. So, David, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Zelwyn. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's always always a pleasure to have you on. How's How are things over in the Commonwealth? Yeah, Kentucky, let's see, at, at the time of our recording here, it's the beginning of August. Things are things are good. Everything's getting ready to, the big thing here is school starting. I grew up in Michigan and we never started school until after Labor Day. I think it had something to do with tourism, right? You wanted to make sure people could still visit Michigan, uh, could still go on vacation through Labor Day. Well, that's not a concern here. So we start already in the beginning of August, which to me, wow. I mean, it, it just it doesn't seem right. You know, what happened to summertime? <laughs> Especially during the hottest part of the year. Yeah, well, I think so. The goal is the kids can get out early because June in Kentucky anyways, June is just as hot as August. So, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, of course, up here in North Dakota, we tend to start later. And then, you know, in theory, we're supposed to get out at a normal time, but the winter usually kind of brings several snow days with yeah. it that push th- things back. But we don't have too many of those. I mean, there's still <laughs> some, but it's not, uh, you don't count on it like you do up in North Dakota, I'm sure. You you don't look forward to like 20, 30, 40 below temperatures? No, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, very good. Things are going well up here in North Dakota. It's actually pretty pretty nice right now. It's not too hot, which is always a good thing for me. And I'm still waiting on my tomatoes to finish ripening. Did you put in a garden this year, David? No, I didn't this year. We had a baby in March. So I, I was derelict in my duties to put the garden in because I was, you know, staying up late, rocking a baby to sleep and all that. Well, I'm not sure if if we can call it derelict, but yeah. Well, I just my attentions and energies were elsewhere. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's dive into our subject then. So, Leah is continuing his discussion in the pastor, and he's moving on now to catechesis. So, David, what is catechesis? How would you define that word? And you know what what do we mean by it? Yeah, well, catechesis is a word that you can use to make yourself sound very intelligent and uh, also make yourself unintelligible. That's usually (laughs) what it's used for. But the the actual word, it just comes from a Greek word. The the word means like it's related to echoing. Okay, so there's a call and a response, and so this comes then into the church as the the kind of basic form of teaching. The teacher asks a question and the student responds, question and answer, question and answer. I'm sure our listeners have heard this word before. It's not completely foreign to us, but it's related to the catechism, right? Is the, you know, just a bunch of questions and answers about Christian doctrine. And why is it important to stress the fact that this is a oral activity, that this is 
literally echoing, a, a sound going back and forth. I think this is one of Leah's, this is a very basic chapter, to be honest. It's it's something every pastor is is quite familiar with, maybe not necessarily great at. I think we're going to talk in this episode a lot about confirmation and, and some of the challenges of teaching the catechism. That's really what Leah focuses in on. But at the very beginning here, he, he really stresses that this is meant to be um, an oral and audible experience. Why is that important to stress? I think it has to do just with the nature of how he's getting at something about how we learn things best, right? So how do, especially how do children best learn something? But I think it's more than just children. It's a very different thing to be given a book and be told, here, read this and learn what's in it versus having having an actual in the flesh teacher saying, hey, here's here's what I want you to learn, and I'm going to ask you questions about it. I, that's a little bit vague, but do you do you get the point there, Zellin? Yeah, no, I I think and I think the the point to drive home there is that when we, like you say, just engage in a literary exercise, that's primarily an individual thing. Like you don't you don't usually read books together. I mean, I suppose you read books to your children, but that's quite a bit different activity from, say, reading even something like the Bible or reading the catechism or whatever that whatever the case may be. It's it's primarily an individual thing, but God has not created us to be just individuals. God has created us as the body, the church, and so, in a sense, the head speaking, you know, the voice of, of the body, you know, speaking through the pastor's and teaching the rest of the body is is a, is a very natural thing. It's what God has created us to be and what God wants us to do. Yeah. So we shouldn't we don't want to think of catechesis primarily in terms of transferring information, which I think unfortunately a book lends itself very well to doing. Catechesis is much more than that. It is a shaping, it is a it is a conversation, and it is a, a teaching as well the key word there, and he's going to, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but a mutual conversation, right? So the, think of just the difference between preaching and what we're describing here as this back and forth question and answer, a dialogue, right? When you're preaching, nobody would, this is commanded by Christ, right? To go out into the world and preach the gospel. So I'm not saying this to denigrate preaching, but it's a different thing. It's one-sided, right? The pastor is addressing the congregation and the congregation is not responding in any way, right? There's certainly active listening and we've done an entire show on that before, but there's, there's no, nobody is standing up and saying, well, what do you mean by that pastor? Is this what you mean? There's no, (laughs) there's not a back and forth. There's not a give (laughs) and take, but in catechesis, that's kind of the whole, that's part of the point of catechesis is I'm the pastor is speaking or the teacher is speaking and imparting some kind of knowledge and information but the student is then able to respond and and needs to respond to show yes I've heard what you're saying and I understand it and I'm able to express it I'm able to actually now confess and say what you've said to me first for that reason David and maybe this is kind of a an ironic question to ask but we see so often with the internet today, 
a a prevalence of you know shows and podcasts and videos like on YouTube and stuff, especially even good like Christian content, is that catechesis? Is that something that could be a even a substitute for catechesis? Well, if it's a if it is a substitute, I would say it's it's not it's not an equal substitute, right? Because if sure. you're if you're just watching a video, a YouTube clip, or even listening to to a podcast, again, what's missing is what I just described. There's not a give and take. There's not a back and forth. You don't have an actual teacher in front of you um, who you're you're able to talk to and ask questions about. And it, I'm not, I'm not denying like that. That's a an okay way to learn things about the Christian faith, but it's really it can't be an equal substitute for real, honest catechesis, as, as Leah is describing here. And I think it's it's worth bringing up because, oh man, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff that's available on the internet, and like you said, it's good like sound doctrine, it's good sound teaching. But it's it's not the same thing as your own pastor sitting down with you or standing in front of the class and actually asking them questions and examining. Do do you actually know this? Are you picking it up? Are you able to kind of integrate this teaching into your into your own life? Even even us on a word fitly spoken here. I mean, we're not going to be able to replace your own pastor because, you know, we're not going to be there. If you need to talk to somebody like in a in a dire situation or to actually, you know, be there in your own life and to deal with your own individual things. So there is something good about learning more through these kind of mediums. But yeah, you're you're right, David, that you cannot replace that face to face contact that having a pastor who gets to know you very well and who can actually speak to your own individual situation. I, I mean, that's, that is something that you really just, you just can't get away from. Right. And, and on top of that too, something else that catechesis does is it's not merely just learning something, you know, from, you know, like an outline or something like that. It is also learning through example, you know, be uh, pastors are called to be examples to the flock and an internet you know, someone speaking on the internet is not going to be be that good example for you in the way that you see someone interacting with you and and seeing what it means to be following after the Lord in everything. So yeah. it's it's more than just like you say that information. It's also seeing how they live as well as what they're talking about. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, I would. I would completely agree. I mean, anyone can relate to this. I think any any subject that you learn not just related to Christianity, but think of just being in school and the teachers who you love and the the subjects that you come to love, there's oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you learn to love these things first because you see the excitement that the teacher has about them. Or or you see something in the teacher that kind of grips you and says, this is really, this is an important lesson for me to learn or this content matters. I can remember a story that my dad has sometimes told me of uh, being a kid, and th- this is tangential to catechesis, but I think it gets the point across. He he has this memory as a child of looking up at his dad, my grandfather, praying the Lord's Prayer, and just kind of realizing, watching his dad, my dad actually believes this stuff. 
<laughs> you know, so a very basic, very basic thing, you know, like he wasn't teaching my, my dad, like what is the meaning of thy kingdom come or something like that. But that's an, that's an example of if you don't have the teacher right in front of you, you might not pick that up. You know what I mean? So, so we often will try to emphasize the importance of the local stuff over and against the, the broader tangential things. And so, yeah, if you want to listen to podcasts, I mean, we're kind of doing this, so <laughs> we right. must think it has some value, but this can never become a substitute for your own congregation, your own conversation with your own pastor, your own father, your own family. That's more important than, than this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And at the risk of kind of sounding a little bit contradictory, we do need to talk about what is actually being taught in confirmation. So yes, it's important that we talk about, you know, how it is taught and, you know, what it means to be in a, in a, a very local thing so that you can have that kind of echoing that catechesis going on. But what exactly is being taught? Yeah. What is the content of catechesis? Yeah, the sometimes we, and I do this too, when you talk about catechesis, there's, there's a very broad kind of understanding of that. Any kind of teaching about Christianity could, could theoretically be called part of catechesis, right? But Leah emphasizes, and I think we would kind of naturally emphasize this too, is the basics of Christianity or the the essential core of the the teaching of salvation. Right. Maybe put it that way. So this is where you get why this word catechesis is all often connected to the catechism, which is just contains what every Christian should know and be able to do. Right. So we're not and, and Leah gets into a good point here. He says there are some experiences that every Christian should have. But it's not really the place of catechesis to talk about, to teach people about the experiential aspect of Christianity. You're focusing on the actual core, the actual basics of the way of salvation. Sure, sure. And and very often when we're dealing like with the catechism and teaching the catechism, we're not trying to give an absolute comprehensive biblical knowledge, because frankly, that can't be done even in three years. It can't be done even in three lifetimes for that matter. Right. But if we give our catechumens, to use the, the big word, if we give our learners the very basics of what it means to be a Christian, that should provide a very solid foundation for continued growth in this area. So learning how to pray, for example, you know, encouraging that yeah. Christian duty, learning what it means to believe in Christ, what it means to call on him, what it means to receive his sacraments, what those sacraments mean. These all form the basic foundation of catechesis. And as you say, it should be focused on, I guess you could call it the bare minimum, if you want to use that kind of language, the the very necessary stuff of learning what it means to be a Christian. But that that doesn't mean that we should just aim the bar extremely low and yeah. just kind of leave it as the low, lowest common denominator. It just means that there is a certain amount of things that everyone should know for, and then from which they can build on. 
But due to some technical difficulties, we have to take our first break. We'll be right back with a more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. And we are back. Zelwyn Heidi, David Apple, talking about Leia on catechesis. So before we had to cut off our first section, we were talking about like the content of catechesis, and I think we kind of drove home the point there. But now we should move on to another point that Leia makes here in talking about what he calls the proper measure of catechesis and finding that proper balance of when we're in the act of teaching in, in catechism class. So what does is, what is Leah mean by that, David? Yeah, he uses this word measure quite a bit in the, in the whole chapter, and he, he uses it in different ways. So I think it's good to put that out in front of us here. But basically, he has in mind a couple, a couple of things. He has the big picture, like you want to lay the, the solid foundation. So uh, in our last little segment there, we were kind of trying to find the right word. We don't want to say the bare minimum, I think a better image to have in mind is laying the the right foundation. You don't want your foundation to be too wide, but you don't want it to be too narrow either, right? You don't want it to be too deep, but you don't want it to be too shallow. So the with that in mind, you have the big picture, the proper measure of the the total goal of the catechesis program. But then also, how does each individual lesson, how does each instruction period fit in to the, that big picture. And both of those things are necessary, big picture, little picture, however you want to put it there. You have to know what your goal is, and then you have to be able to break down in manageable segments, in manageable steps or parts. How do I get from point A to point B? Are you, are you trying to say that we're not training future uh, church workers and theologians with every catechumen that we have? With- <laughs> Well, yeah, that so that's a that's a good example of the big picture thing here, right? So, and Leah even brings this point out section where he's talking about how does a pastor prepare. He really touches on this, but there is, and, and I fall into this myself. I'll I'll confess here to you, Zelwyn. If Willie was on, I would <laughs> I would never say these things. There is kind of a tendency uh, among pastors, I think, especially, and and you can see this in sermon preparation too, to make things overly. S- Leia says overly scholastic, right? As if, and then he uses the example, as if you were trying to train every one of your members to be a pastor, right? So you're, you're, what you're not trying to do is 
recreate the seminary in your own congregation. Okay. And this, I I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. He's not against like good, solid catechetical lessons, but there is a, there is wisdom in knowing what is the ceiling and what is the floor and how do I hit the mid, the midpoint there? (laughs) Well, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think pastors are always, are all guilty of this. I mean, and I'll confess to you, David, since we're mutually confessing here. Your own most grievous faults. I'm not going to absolve yes. you over the internet, Zolan. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It doesn't. It doesn't quite work that way. But when we are preparing for things, we can sometimes forget our own level of knowledge, our own level of training is not going to be shared by other people. It's kind of the. It's it's actually a psychological thing where people who don't know very much often overestimate how much they know, but people who know a lot often overestimate how much other people know you know sure and so we can forget that not everybody is has has our same level of education but the the trick is not to say make everybody out to be like you say pastors the trick is to realize that hey what we need to teach is the important things and to build that foundation upon which something else then can be built because yeah obviously we would love it if people would go on and to learn much more about what it means to be a Christian. But in reality, not everybody needs to, and not everybody should. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, Leah talks about this, the manly virtue of being, of having a sound mind or prudence. I think he is the, is what he says. The manly virtue of prudence recognizes again, what we're saying here is the big, the, the big measure like what what do i want each of my catechumens what do i want each of my confirmation kids to know and then okay once i have that goal or to know and be able to do I, this this reminds me so much of when i was in college i was studying to be a teacher i think you might have been too zowen you you have all these like state given objectives that you're supposed to meet and when you're writing your lessons you're supposed to lay out like this is to set this lesson will satisfy state curriculum goal 3.2.a okay and i mean it's it's very freeing to be set free from that as a pastor you're not doing that right you don't have you don't have mandates and and nobody's looking over your class lessons and so it's freeing on the one hand but it's but it also then requires you to actually have a little bit of self discipline so that you're not just sort of shooting at the hip every lesson, <laughs> right. which you know might be kind of fun, and maybe the students would enjoy it. There's various professors and teachers we've all had who are like that, but you <laughs> you're not you're not actually accomplishing the proper goal, then, right? And so you're you're measureless. You're without measure in what you're doing, right? And and it really is a good idea to have just like you say a general plan and a general outline of what what you're going to accomplish and how you're going to do it. And we did actually talk about this at some length in a previous episode talking about Bible histories with Pastor Aaron Uphoff, which I thought was a very good way to go about this task because it does seek to set that balance between doing too little versus doing too much and just trying to find the the Goldilocks, you know, just right kind of proportion. Yeah, the the helpful thing for us, uh, especially as Lutheran pastors, you when it comes to the catechism, I mean, this is we're not reinventing the wheel, right? Right. And and even in Leah's time, he 
he says he says the same thing that I think we would would both say. There's so many resources for the catechism that you'd have to either be. Leah doesn't say this. This is just my opinion. If you're <laughs> if you're kind of floundering and you don't have a sense of the whole and the parts, the proper measure, well, there's so many resources. Just just get some kind of a good resource, right? Sure. But even in his own time, he said, what's not as clearly developed for us is the Bible history aspect of laying a foundation, which I thought was interesting because I think there are probably more resources now. And uh, like we said, like you just mentioned, if you want to know some of those resources, go back to the whichever number episode it is, you can check that out. But I feel the same way. I think so much is provided for the catechism that there's just not the same corresponding amount of resources for Bible history. There's good ones, but there's just not as many. Well, and the importance of learning the Bible history too, if only because we live in an age, not that any age has been super great at this. I mean, there's always been this problem, but we're basically, people don't read the Bible like they should. And they, they consequently don't know the Bible as well as they should. And I mean, the Bible in that sense, especially when you don't know where to turn, could be considered somewhat overwhelming. And something like a Bible history is a good way to build up that foundation and to give a guide, which would lead us to a better biblical literacy. So, I mean, I know that I've tried to incorporate Bible history stuff into my catechesis, and I know Pastor Upoff has, and I think you have too, David. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm much the same as I think you guys. I know Aaron and I talk about this fairly regularly. So uh, my program is is similar to his, Old Testament, New Testament, and catechism. That's kind of the three-year cycle that we just rotate through. Sure. Well, and it makes good sense, too. I mean, like you say, the the Bible is a big book, and to get through all of it in a logical and a proportional way would involve, you know, some amount of time. Yeah. he Leah has some, some interesting comments here, too, about, you know, he's kind of, once he, he gets the main point, he kind of entertains this, this wider question of which is more important, Bible history or doctrinal content. So Bible or catechism, you know, if you want to start a debate among Lutheran pastors, just ask that question. But what Leah (laughs) says is, if you had to pick one over the other, you should pick Bible history, because in his words, doctrine is an abstraction of the histories, which I think what he means is when we're discussing things like what is the, what's the relation of, of teaching to history, or, or when you get into the, the historical different senses of scripture right now i don't know if you want to go down this road with me zelwyn but <laughs> if you want to get into the unisensus debate i think what what luther when he's talking about you know we don't need to bring in all kinds of allegories stick with the the one sense i don't think that he would say that you know that means you're choosing a historical sense versus a you know, doctrinal sense, but that these things fit together, right? So the, the right. history gives you then the the doctrine, and you you really can't have one without the other. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to go out into the weeds on that. Okay, one. that would take up the rest of the episode. I was, I was baiting you. I know, I know you were, but we're gonna. I'm going to resist the bait, okay. and we're going to keep on trucking here. <laughs> but the point is well made that 
if you're going, I mean, even what we say about the catechism is that it is, you know, a synopsis. It's a, an abbreviation. It's basically distilling the Bible down to the, the most basic, most necessary teachings of what the Bible has to say. But the catechism should not be a replacement for the Bible. The catechism should just be a guide to it so that if we lost the guide, so to speak, if we lost the, the basic distillation, but still had the Bible, we've, we haven't lost all that much because we could still reproduce the catechism. But if we lost the Bible, but didn't, but had the catechism, we, we, we'd be quite impoverished. I yeah. mean, we'd be, right. we'd be lost. Right. If you have a right. two story house, you can, you can lose the top story of the house and still live in that house right now. It's not going to be right. as nice as it was, but you can rebuild the second story. But if you if you kick out the the bottom level somehow, well, then the top level caves in too. Right, right. And I think any any confessional Lutheran is going to say that that you know the confessions are we accept them because the, you know they are in agreement with the Bible, not because they are the Bible, but. Anyway, the point is is here, and maybe to kind of move the, the conversation along a little bit. So if we're talking with laying out a proper measure, laying out a plan, now the, the pastor has the plan, he knows what he's going to do, he knows how much he's going to do, how does he actually prepare for catechesis? We could say even on an individual level or just in general. Yeah, so Leah, again, he's he's speaking very generally. He doesn't get into the individual you know, how do I prepare to teach the third petition of the Lord's Prayer or something? But basically, he just says, you have to do it. You, ha- you have to be prepared. <laughs> and especially, and I think this is a good point to make, especially because of the nature of catechesis, because you're, you're, you want to have a mutual conversation with the students. You want to have some kind of give and take, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be you have to be very well prepared so that when the question comes up or when, you know, like we just had here, when the question comes up or a statement gets made that doesn't really relate to the the goal of the lesson, you don't get lost chasing down, going down a trail. (laughs) My goodness, talking about sixth, seventh, eighth graders, they ask some of the most bizarre questions that have nothing to do with anything. And usually, you know, when the question starts, what about or what if I I've taught my kids, you know, they'll they'll call one another out on this. Like, well, that's not we're not here to debate the all the what ifs, but we want to know, like, what is. <laughs> and I think that that's a good example of of why that preparation is necessary. And, and I think everyone can can tell this from experience, but it's just a, a helpful reminder to read it. Yeah, and I mean, and just and just being prepared in general is just a good idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but with maybe your own personal experience, David, like how do you prepare for an individual class? Maybe even just beyond the the laying it out and having the the mental preparation. Like, what kind of things would you also do? What I've got it it depends on. So take this three year approach that I think we all share. If I'm doing, say, an Old Testament lesson. Like let's say it's it's something like the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. I'm going to want to to know that story inside and out just like the exegesis of the main section of scripture that I'm going to have us read, but I'm also going to want to know okay, what how am I going to fit this into the catechism because I think we're all 
in agreement that you want your Bible history years, when you're doing Old Testament or New Testament, you also want that to flow back into the catechism, right? So you have to know, okay, I'm going to learn the history of Joseph and his brothers, but I want it to connect to what part of the catechism? Okay, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And if I didn't have that in mind, well, I, I could never, I don't know, you might kind of happen into it. You might luck into hitting on that that topic, but if I'm not prepared, I'm not going to get there. Also, things like the illustrations I'm going to draw on the board, I, I practice actually writing those out so I know how it's going to fit in the space. I mean, just, just very basic things like that I think are helpful so that when you're in front of six, seven, eight kids, you're actually, you're not doing it for the first time. Right, right. Well, and I would also hope that you would prepare with prayer as well, right? Yes, this is always good. <laughs> Which is part of what I was getting at is that, you know, this is, we, we might get caught up in the, the educational end of things, and that's good. I mean, we should be prepared to actually teach the lesson, but we can't forget that this is also an, a function of, the, I mean, the office, a function of what it means to be a Christian, and so we should in, invoke the Lord's guidance and the Lord's yeah. blessing on this True. as well. True. I, I don't know. It maybe, maybe it sounds like it's obvious, but sometimes you never know with these things. So, But with that then, and so we've talked about the preparation, we've talked about the, you know, how it happens. Is there a specific form to how it happens? And this is kind of what we're getting at as well. How do you actually carry out the work itself? Like you're in catechism class. You know, what does that question and answering look like? Leah says you you don't want to have just a pure questioning because we all know that before you before the the students are going to ask appropriate questions, they have to be told something. Right? So you're not you're not aiming for pure what do you guys think about Joseph and his brothers? Or what do you think about the will of God? Or, you know, it's something so broad like that. So there is going to be a need for like an authoritative kind of, I'm going to present something and then I'm going to ask questions that follow up on it. But so he he kind of gets into this, the appropriate, again, this is part of knowing the right measure of things too, knowing the right measure between lecture and questioning. But but he's, I, I think his main point and the one that I would want to bring out for us and our discussions, Owen, is is to remember that the goal here is really to get the to get the students to engage and actually ask questions for themselves, and that doesn't just right. automatically happen. There's all kinds of things that prevent the students from asking questions, and we can discuss some of those. And then there's there's also things in the teacher himself or in the pastor himself that that he might do or not do that can prevent those things. Does that make sense? I think that's where we would want to go. Right. And I mean, the way that I've encountered this too, memorization, for example, is a wonderful exercise because it gives you that basis that you were talking about, you know, the the building blocks in which, which to use to actually formulate things. But sometimes I think we can make memorization such, you know, such a goal in itself that, you know, people begin to just recite things without really comprehending. I think that is a real danger that comes along with 
basic memorization. It doesn't have to happen that way, but I think very often it does. Sure. And so getting a student to not only to recite what they're supposed to memorize and supposed to remember, but also to then to say, well, you tell me what this means and how this applies to your individual life. And using that kind of like, you know, I guess you could say the what if kind of situations, you know, what about in this situation or this situation to get them to really internalize and to really grasp what it is that is being taught through the the work of memorization and teaching and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the biblical example that he invokes here is the boy Jesus in the temple. Some of our hymns make it sound like Jesus is giving a lecture to the priests and the Levites and the rabbis there. But the in Luke, I believe he's, the word is he's asking questions. Now his right. questions are, are displaying an unusual grasp on things because people are blown away at his questions, at his understanding. Right. If that's kind of the, the big picture you have, here's the goal. I want my students to be like the, you know, the 12 year old Jesus in the temple who is asking, you know, intelligent questions and is learning, but showing his that he is actually grasping what is being taught by what he's questioning, then you, you'll avoid simply asking yes and no questions. So that's the one example Leah uses. You know, yes, sometimes you have to ask a simple yes or no question, but if that's all you're doing, you're not using the right measure. And we might say the same thing, what you were saying there, Zelwyn. If, if all you're doing is getting the students to respond with, their memory work, you've done, you know, that's a good, that's a laudable first goal, but that's not really the big picture. You've fallen short of the the broader measure that you want to have. Right. We need to hide the word in our heart to use the language of the Psalms, but but we also need to be able to proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. So, and the um, think about in students, what are the things that prevent students from actually asking intelligent questions? I mean, you think about the the education system that we have now, and and some of this stuff is is way outside, or it's it's beyond just the scope of the pastor, right? But the, I think pastors need to be aware of like what is what is the level of that my students are coming with? What is their, their, how are they being taught in other classes on kind of a daily basis? What does their, what do they expect a class to be like? Right. Because all of that is, you know, we inherit sixth graders and they, they've, they've had lots of teachers before we get them. Right. (laughs) Right. And right. And so their opinions about what it means to be in class and what it means to be taught are have already been shaped by all kinds of other people before us. So you have to be a little bit conversant with what do they expect? What are they going to be like? Why would they be hesitant to ask questions? I mean, there's there's like social dynamics going on here, right? Students never want to appear to be dumb, right? So sometimes they right. they won't even ask like the basic question that they want to ask out of some kind right. of peer pressure. Then there's, the, I encounter this all the time. It's usually by the time they're in eighth grade instead of sixth grade, but like it's kind of uncool to appear too interested in anything, right? So there's like that, <laughs> that ideal of apathy. And so you ha- how do you counter that? All of those right. things are are in the, in the mind of the of the good catechist 
who wants to be able to say, you know what? And I just kind of say it directly. I say, you know, you've, you probably think that being too interested is a problem, <laughs> but we have to get, we have to get beyond that. Well, that, and you're dealing with kids in a transitional period in their life anyway. And so, especially towards the eighth grade, you're dealing with hormones and all that sort of stuff. But joy, oh joy. But I I think that's going to have to be a discussion for a bit later. So we need to go into our second break. So we'll be right back with a word fitly spoken. He said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. And we are back. Zoe and Heidi, David Apple, talking about Leia on catechesis. So we got done talking about how confirmation happens, how catech- what catechesis looks like, you know, how a pastor should prepare. But now I think perhaps in this last section, we should look at Leia's general guidance about confirmation in general, and about catechesis. And one of the first things that he mentions is something of a historical tidbit, but perhaps interesting for us, and at least for the wisdom that it presents, of not having a pastor actually confirm his own confirmants. What does he mean by this, and what is he referring to, David? Let's do it this way. The At the time that Leia's writing, we'll, we'll take that, and then we can go to the the older church traditions before Leia. What would happen was when the pastor had finished his instruction of the youth, when he deemed that they were ready for confirmation, he would not be the one who pronounced kind of the final judgment on, yes, they are mature, or yes, they have, they're ready to be confirmed. That they would be presented then to the consistory or some, some part of the church government at that time so you'd have an outside, uh, a third party, so to speak, come in and say either, yes, these students are indeed well instructed or no. I, and I, I don't know how, you know, he doesn't say how frequently that happened, that right. they would actually come in and say, no, these kids are not ready for confirmation. But what he does say is that there is some wisdom to this, right? right. And now that is, I think, foreign to us because I've never heard of a pastor. Now, you know, maybe we'll get some emails here, but I've never heard of a pastor <laughs> like presenting the kids to the district president or the circuit visitor right. uh, or or who maybe to the board of elders. I don't know. I think that'd be the most common, but I even then I don't I don't know how often it happens. Yeah. I think the the usual Missouri practice is 
the pastor examines them and the pastor says, yes, they are ready or no, they're not. Right. And, you know, I think that that's, that's going to be the way that it is given the current state of affairs, but right. um, there is, I don't know, it, I had never considered that to be honest until I read this and it did kind of raise the, there is some wisdom to it, right? Of having a third party who you trust. And that's where the difficulty comes in for us, I think. But having a third party, another pastor or uh, someone in authority over you who would say, yeah, you have taught these kids. And yes, they are. They they do know the basics, right? They have that that good foundation. Well, I suppose it's just like, you know, dealing with parents and the parents' estimation of their child's abilities and what their children know is always necessarily going to be biased. And for good reason. I mean, we love our kids and, you know, we want the best for them, but we're not going to be able to step back and fairly judge, you know, what our children do and do not know. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a different thing than hankering for a bishop, right? You know, just so that you could have the the bishop come in and give the sacrament of confirmation, which is the, I mentioned this before, that's kind of the older tradition was that the bishop would be the one who would actually what's the right word, Zellen, would actually impart that sacrament or, or right, would, right. would, would confirm the, the children. And then you get the, the various rituals and ceremonies that go along with confirmation, which is really outside of our scope of what we want to discuss. Right. I mean, and, and we would even say that confirmation is not a sacrament. I mean, even going that far and because it's not a sacrament, you know, we don't, we don't have to have that Episcopal structure to impart as they would consider the Holy Spirit at confirmation. Correct. But right. for us, like you say, and Leah says, there is some still some wisdom and probably why the practice got started at all before it was kind of corrupted into something else, that there is wisdom in having someone else yeah. actually make the judgment about whether or not they're ready. Now that we've kind of opened the, the cats out of the bag, what is the relationship of confirmation to the sacraments? Like, let's start with baptism, yeah. for example. How does confirmation, how does catechesis relate to our baptism? Right. So I guess what the the question here is, what is being confirmed? Right. And if if you think of the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. I don't think that Christ and the church were ever meant to do one or the other, but you want both and, okay, this is basic stuff. I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but for some reason that, that is not always operative in people's minds, right? So they think, and you can see this is probably a for a, a matter of lack of catechesis. Parents will want their children to be baptized, but then there's no idea that that baptism is going to connect them to the life of the church that follows, right? To the teaching right. that's going to come afterwards. Or you get this sometimes vice versa too, where, okay, I haven't been to church in three years, but my child is six is in sixth grade and I want him to be confirmed. Right. Okay. What are you doing? <laughs> Why? Right. <laughs> Confirming what into what? So the way that I would address this is to to try to emphasize the importance of the life of the church and to be to be a part of the congregation. So baptism brings you into Christ and into his body, the church, which means 
You're going to be an active participant in worship. You're going to be active in receiving ongoing instruction. And this then connects it with the, with the other sacrament. When you're confirmed, you're confirming that, that baptismal calling or that baptismal covenant. That's the language that Leah uses. You know, don't get mad at me. And you're, you're confirming that so that you are then saying you desire to receive the Lord's Supper, the, the sacramental body of Christ. Right. And I know that very often with our congregations, we tend to connect the Lord's Supper very closely with confirmation, probably uh, to the point where some people become a little uncomfortable with it. But why is there wisdom in having this kind of instruction prior to receiving the Lord's Supper? Well, just due to the nature of of going to the Lord's, receiving the Lord's Supper for the first time is a it is a, a crucial moment, right? I mean, every, every time a person goes to communion is, a, is an important time, of course, right? Don't, right. Mis, don't mishear me. But especially the first time, you want people to be well-prepared and you want them to come knowing, knowing what it is that they're doing, why they're coming, how to be prepared for it. And that's, so what Leah says is that's really the goal of confirmation class is to prepare these students one, to confirm their baptismal calling, the baptismal covenant, to say again, yes, I renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways, and I believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I want to be part of the church. And then to be able to come to communion well prepared. And so he he makes this, I, I don't know, it was an interesting, again, an interesting thing to to read. He says, you really can't keep that excitement, that eagerness up for a long period of time. So he he kind of says confirmation class should be short so that you're you're really keeping it focused on the main thing. Now sure. what we've been discussing is that our our confirmation classes last three years, right? The the <laughs> cycle is three years. And we're not always and it's true, right? Isn't it what he's saying? You're you're not always saying like we're preparing to receive the Lord's Supper. You know, you're you're trying to do so many other things in confirmation. So it's just interesting to read him who's kind of advocating for let's narrow the focus here and focus in on the Lord's Supper with what we're doing, which is trying to really broaden the thing out so that you're actually getting that good foundation. Well, I think he probably can make it as narrow as he does because there's probably a lot more things in place us alongside of confirmation that would kind of take up much of the slack of what we're trying to do. Yeah. So, I mean, Sunday school, for example, is not something that will come about in Leah's day. I mean, it's going to, or if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty, didn't it come about at the beginning of the 1900s, if I remember correctly? I Maybe think, it was a bit earlier. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that that kind of general education is something that should take up some of the slack but unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we can ask ourselves, you know, is it doing what we want it to do? And is it actually accomplishing the ends that we want it to accomplish? Or do we find ourselves expanding confirmation more and more and more to basically do all of these things in a relatively short period of time? Go back to what, what we were starting to address before. What is confirmation confirming and what are you being confirmed into? Leah says what you're trying to do is draw the students into the what we might say 
the sacramental life of the church. Right. Which we don't just mean here sort of the platitude of, hey, remember your baptism and cling to the body and blood of Christ in the supper. Those are good things to say. But I wonder if if when people hear that, they know what we mean by it. Right. right. So when we say remember your baptism or renewing the baptismal covenant, Leia is actually really helpful to actually say what he, what we mean by this is put to death the old man, renounce the devil, renounce the world, put those things to death so that this is like the fourth question of the catechism on baptism, so that the new man may emerge daily and arise daily and live before God in righteousness and purity. That's how baptism continues to function in the life of the Christian. And so that's what you're trying to make clear, or that's what he's trying to make clear, is being confirmed in a person. It's not this idea that baptism was was incomplete until I am confirmed. That's sometimes sort of, what's the way to put that? That's sometimes what you hear people say, like baptism was when my parents confessed my faith for me. Now confirmation is when I make it my own. Well, right. that that's there's there's something wrong with that, right? But there's also something healthy in saying I am confirming my baptism. That's why there's a question in our right: Do you acknowledge the gifts God gave you in your baptism? That's why we ask again about renunciation and confessing and intention, the intentions that that these kids have. I think I think you make a good point, and it kind of does actually relate to what I was getting at too. Is that if we and because of all of the things, because of our situation, confirmation has become some bloated somewhat, and we try to accomplish so much in what we're doing with it. But when we recognize that what confirmation is doing is bringing us into the life of the church and, you know, really emphasizing that and teaching so that, you know, they can con- continue to grow on that foundation, I think that will help us understand, you know, what is and is not important in confirmation, it'll help us kind of focus better. So that maybe even if we don't have all of the supports like Leia did, we can at least say, this is what we need to, this is what we're aiming at. This is our goal, something that we need to to shoot for. Yeah, it's, it's extremely helpful to remember that you're, when you're teaching, when you're teaching about the 10 commandments, for instance, you're, you're not, just giving the students the knowledge of the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's part of it. That's an essential component. They need the teaching. But they also need to be taught, like, okay, to do the Ten Commandments, both in terms of, like, confessing as they show you your your sins, but also then to actually try to do them, right, to actually follow the commandments in in your calling as students, as children, as you know, as Christians, as part of the congregation, that that's really the aim, right? Regardless of whether they can spit back the memory work, which they should be able to do, you right. want that second step. And that's really what he's addressing. You want them actually then to put the knowledge into practice. And that's a right. big, that's a big goal. Don't get me wrong. I mean, a seventh grader, an eighth grader, that's going to be very different than when they're 25. Hopefully it should be different. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but having the foundation laid when they're sixth, seventh, eighth grader, so that they'll be prepared when they're twenty-five, is is really kind of the the point. A common problem I run into is the the idea that the church, that life in the church, is is really not necessary. 
it's not all that important. So I, what's important is I got my child baptized or I was baptized when I was a baby. I did confirmation and I got the Lord's Supper. I took it, right? You can just hear it in the way people talk. I took the Lord's Supper once or twice and I believe, but it hasn't, <laughs> but then that doesn't actually shape my life in any way. Right. You know what I mean? And that's that sort of downplaying of the church and being a part of the church I don't know. There's so many errors of our times, right? So I don't want to say that's the only error of our times, but that's in relation to confirmation. That's a big one. That's a big one. Well, and we almost view confirmation. I I don't know how else to put it. We almost view it kind of superstitiously. Uh, This idea that if I just, like you say, if I just have my kids confirmed because I was confirmed, you know, and I still believe in some sense, so they'll still believe in some sense. And then, you know, unfortunately, we sometimes get surprised then when our children then don't have that foundation like we want them to. You know, if we separate ourselves from the life of the church and from what, you know, being in the Bible, being among other believers, being, you know, receiving God's gifts on Sunday morning, all of these things, if we think that that's just secondary and that, you know, receiving some sort of right is the primary thing, I don't see, you know, what we are being confirmed into. Yeah, I don't I don't even know if there's really a point to confirmation if we aren't actually being a part of the church before, during and after. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Right. It's just going through the right. And and in our times, right, the I think we've seen a liturgical resurgence and attention to these things, which is good and laudable. But just going through the right is not going to help anybody. Right. So if the kids, if you've gone through three years of instruction and they don't know anything more than they did before, but you put them through the rite of confirmation, what what has happened? Are, right. Is the rite going to magically produce something in those kids? No, the rite is there to recognize the the teaching that has been given, that has been received. And it's an it's an important I don't know, rite of passage or something. I mean, I think that that's sure. that that's true for kids, but to have the right without the teaching is it's just very hollow. Unfortunately, I think this is also true of our society in general, but we don't want to outsource teaching our children the Bible, which unfortunately I think is also something that confirmation has become, especially for parents who see it in the way that we were talking about. Confirmation really should begin at home. It really should begin with, you know, teaching your children what it means to be a believer, both through what you do with them, you know, reading them the Bible, praying with them, that sort of thing, but also through, you know, modeling that life in and what it means to be a Christian to them day in and day out. Yeah. Because a pastor really ultimately doesn't have a whole lot of time with kids, but parents are a tremendous influence and children really do pay attention to what their parents are doing. So if you want your kids to be confirmed, which is a laudable thing and a, and a glorious thing, you know, begin it now <laughs> with right. in the home. Right. Right. And, and for pastors, there's no way to, I mean, we could lament this and I think we all do. I mean, <laughs> this, right. this is not right. the first time that you and I have discussed this, let alone other pastors. We all see it. We all lament it. What can be done about it? You have to actually talk to the parents. I mean, you, we've got to put this in front of them and, and remind them of their 
calling and that God has given them those children so that they would bring them up in the faith. And the church certainly has a role in it, right? The church is certainly there. The pastor, the parents do not like make the pastor null and void. But right. if you just have the pastor without the parents, man, that's going to be, it's no wonder that I heard this statistic recently, I think at the convention, since the 50s, only one in three of our confirmands continue in the Lutheran church. That's a statistic yeah. that's, that's, um, that's just awful. And we have to, we have to do something more than just lament it. Yeah. And I, and I don't want my, my observations to be seen as just laments. Yeah. No, it really no, is, I don't. <laughs> it really is just the point of saying that, you know, many of our problems would be at least improved. I'm not going to say solved. I'll say improved if we would begin the work at the at the, the very lowest level, at the grassroots level, and that is in the family, in the home. Yeah. And then w- in the church. So Willie would be would be very unhappy and displeased with us if we weren't using this time to call people to act to a little bit of action, right? <laughs> that's all I'm that's all I'm getting at. Yeah, it, that's true. That's true. And we'll look forward to having Willie back to exhort us probably next week. So David, any final thoughts before we close for today? I think just to close again, this this section, this chapter is is quite brief, and it's addressing um, you know confirmation catechesis generally, but especially confirmation. I would just I would just kind of encourage people if you if you've got the book, take it up and and see what Leia mentions, especially this notion of the value of audible oral back and forth, the mutual conversation that you're aiming for is a great thing to to read again. Well, very good. Well, thank you, David. A joy to have you on, as always. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, you can check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. You can also give us some comments or join our discussion group on Facebook at wordfitlyposting. I'm Zoe Heidi, here with David Appold. God love you, and God bless. The confirmation instruction is by nature something festive, given on the threshold of communion fellowship, rich in expectation. For this very reason, the congregation expects it to be something especially uplifting and stimulating. But how would it be possible to keep the festive relationship to the coming sacred acts firm and fresh throughout a whole year, or even half a year? Here, the right measure is necessary in order not to miss out on the purpose.